Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest, Ryan Nidell, began his entrepreneurial journey at the age of 10 with a local lawn mowing operation, which led to being under the wing of a local businessman and being mentored starting at the age of 14. He currently is a principal in a private equity group, the CEO of two eight-figure companies, and sits on the board of directors for several other companies, and he has built a reputation as a top-performing business growth specialist and someone able to rapidly improve the profitability of companies in order to achieve a higher valuation and sell for significantly more revenue. He's helped with the acquisition or exit of more than 11 companies while seeing their collective revenue surpass more than $237 million. And as great as that is, in my conversation with Ryan, we talk less about what he does and what he thinks and far more about how he thinks and how he creates. A remarkable man with many lessons to share. So let's get this show started. Ryan Nidell, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Really happy to meet you. We had a like, like literally a two-minute pre-recording, pre-audio uh, check kind of stuff. So great to meet you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for thanks for the time, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Now, Ryan, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground. I love your background. Uh, I do have your bio, and you know, my intro is really kind of pales in comparison to what it is you're really all about. But these days when somebody asks you, you know, for our listeners benefit, if somebody says, so Ryan, what do you do? Uh, what's your, what's your answer to that question these days? Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a trifurcation of that, if that word even exists. So my primary focus right now is one of the companies in my portfolio that is MIT 45. 
Mid45 is a Kratom company. We're one of the largest in the industries. I've helped grow this business from a consultant into now CEO and, and managing partner from 5 million in 2019 to we're trending for 75 to 80 million in revenue this year. So really exciting on that side. Then I have a, a small sliver, a small cutout that's it's more of a consultative basis, right? Sitting on board of directors, kind of, you know, sharing sharing what might have gotten me here or some things that people shouldn't focus on. And then really far in the background, I managed a small, small private equity fund, right? From helping some businesses grow and sell over the years, I went back and spoke to the, the owners and they fronted a little bit of capital, right? So when, laughingly, it's funny in the private equity world to say a little private equity fund with $150 million assets under management, like that is, that is a, a sniffle on some of the big guys' sure. nose, but- for for me, it was a large deal. So of course, well, that's yeah. and that's awesome. So give me a little bit on your your kind of the first company. I think you called it MIT. Mm-hmm. MIT number four five. Yep. So tell me what what is what is MIT all about? Yeah. So so MIT is a, a kratom company, and kratom is this called imagine CBD five or six years ago, right? Where there was this thing of gosh, is CBD marijuana? Is it going to get me high? There was all this kind of false information about CBD back then, and maybe even somewhat now. Well, kratom as a, as a leaf is a naturally occurring plant that's in, um, native to Thailand and Indonesia, kind of the two regions it grows. And when taken in small dosages, some some users you know state the fact they get a little bit of energetic uplift, they get a little more mental clarity and focus. And when take large doses, it's more of a relaxing type of product, more of a, a sedative. Now, the downside to it, Patrick, is that it happens to work on the B-class opioid receptors. Now, don't, this is not an opioid. This isn't something that you're going to get addicted to per se, but you have the Oxycontins and, and the, the Vicodins that are A-class receptors. Those are the things that they create that massive chemical dependency where something like Kratom can be used uh, to potentially bridge off of those things and get more into a holistic nature. So we as a company focus on a complete vertically integrated system, owning plants over in Indonesia, manufacturing, all the way here to sales and distribution across the U.S. Uh, that's is fascinating. And it just so happens that I have a friend of mine who is in that CBD world and actually launched the business a few years ago and is you know going through probably much of what you went through to grow and to get to where you are today. So fascinating conversation. I'm definitely going to be uh, talking to Dwayne about you and uh, passing his name along. So when you look at this kind of growth you know, and what you've experienced and where you are today, I mean, you're a relatively young man. I'm you know sitting there looking at you you look like you pump iron three times a week or six times a week 10 times a day i don't know you're a big guy you look healthy young and healthy you've accomplished a lot give me some background into what kind of drives you to have that level of success i mean by anybody's standards you know doing a top line of 70 80 million dollars is uh, pretty awesome I mean, it's a it's a big milestone, a big bench, benchmark for anybody to hit. Uh, so kind of give me some background about who you are, why you do that. I mean, I always look at somebody with your kind of build and say, okay, there's another level of discipline there. And uh, that's all part of it, I think. But tell me from your perspective, Ryan, how did you get there and what does this all mean? Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. So to me, it could be summed up in, in two different sentences. One is something that the, the late Chet Holmes shares in his book, The Ultimate Sales Machine, right? It's a lot of it's pig-headed discipline and determination, right? It's just this, this internal guidance of a childlike curiosity of what's possible. So I'm very high on the experiential scale. And for me, certainly money, money matters. I'm not independently wealthy. I can't retire tomorrow. And but really what it is is the challenging of am I capable of this new level? And in order to be capable, who is the man I would have to become? 
which then gets into the second side of this, which is belief, right? You have to have, for me, my, my thought process is I have to have the belief in the version of myself that's already executing at that level so I can more expediently meet that version of myself. And so I can go back to, to childhood, right? And started a local lawn mowing business at 10. Well, it's not exactly glamorous. I grew up middle-class and I wanted the new Air Jordans that came out. I wanted the new Tommy Hilfiger cologne back then. And my parents looked at me and said, you have to be absolutely nuts. $145, $150 on tennis shoes. We will never buy that for you. Great. Well, I, I honored that. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm a, I'm a father now as well. I don't know that I'd buy my daughter, you know, shoes of that caliber, but at that moment it was, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure this out. There has to be a way because I, I coveted at that moment those shoes and the experience of having those shoes on more so than, you know, sitting around playing Sega Genesis back then. And so it caused me to go out and create that local lawn mowing landscaping service. It was just my little neighborhood, right? I had seven to 10, 10 clients, maybe 10 or $15 a week, but very rapidly as a 10 year old boy, it feels like you're independently wealthy, right? You're getting a hundred dollars a week in cash. You see this, this stack of money, you know, literally growing in front of your eyes. It's like, man, I, you can't tell me anything back then. I, I know everything at 10 years old. So that's really where it all started for me. Well, that's so interesting, you know, because I often ask the question here is, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a leader, is it nature? Is it nurture? How does that actually come to be? And, you know, you, you made an interesting point. You know, I, you know, in my, in my own upbringing, I share the story is that, my, we were in a very lower middle class, not yeah, low mid, if, if that. And so if I wanted something, my dad said, yeah, no problem. You have to pay for at least half of it, which he knew then that if I had a goal that I wanted to spend 20 or 30 bucks, it was going to take me a long time to come up with 10 or $15. So just to give you an example, I mowed lawns and I am far older than you are. I mowed lawns and my neighbor used to hold up two quarters in his picture window as I was mowing our lawn. And he'd kind of, you know, give me the head, like, how about, you know, do my lawn and here's two shiny new quarters and I'd be all over it. But I think to your point is that it inspires an entrepreneurial spirit because it becomes survival. You know, I had three sisters. We didn't have a ton of dough. I don't know what, how I related to that. I didn't make that part wrong. It just was. But once again, it inspired me to shovel walks, do lawns and be creative in terms of how I was going to have the things that I wanted in, you know, as a kid growing up. And, you know, you make a really interesting point is that, you know, we can sometimes as parents maybe feel guilty or make ourselves wrong. But when we look back on our own past, when you consider that that simple thing that your parents gave to you, which was the gift of saying, yeah, no problem. Just go out and get it handled, you know, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll support it, <laughs> you know? So I, I think that's just interesting, you know, and they, maybe they paid for your lawnmower or let you use the, the family lawnmower, but at the end of the day, you got going. Well, absolutely, Patrick. And they, they were fortunate or I was fortunate enough. They did let me use our old steel spray painted sure. blue lawnmower that wasn't self-propelled. So it wasn't as, as glamorous as what my daughter might get to experience now. But for me to, to tap back into that nature versus nurture, right, there was, I'll call it that necessity that was created. But then through that lawn mowing, I ended up getting introduced to a, a local business owner to the town I grew up in, in Ohio. And I didn't realize he was at the tipping point of, of reaching a new level of success as well. And so he owned a manufacturing representative company and he, he encouraged me to come work for him, right? Take care of his lawns and some of his properties, clean his office. And it didn't all connect at that point. It does now. But from 14, when I was hired by him until 21, when right life, life converges or diverges, he, he was instilling in me all these entrepreneurial lessons that now I get to look back as a 38-year-old 
man, young man, boy, it kind of depends on which way I look at it sometimes that man, he was, he was planting these seeds of wisdom that I wasn't fully ready to cultivate back then, but they're just so impactful now. So to me, it's, it's some of both. It's every new level I have achieved has come on the backside of a level of mentorship as well. It's saying, okay, I can go the hard way, right? That certainly exists. And I think there's value in the hard work, the dedication, the, the long hours, the, the scuff knees. But then at some point I start to value speed more. And it's how can I go out and find someone that's traversed this, this landscape many times over, you know, prior to me? And can I invest in having them point out the potholes that are going to ex- exist in front of me? Because I don't need to, I don't need to keep replacing tires, right? Someone can give me the path. And I'll make my own mistakes along the way, which then allow me to, you know, turn around and help other individuals. Where I think that's that's also some of our responsibility as human beings on this planet is as we learn things, it's to share them, right? Which also to me codifies the fact of it no longer something that I've learned, it's something that I've turned into my own, right? When I share it, when I teach it, 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 it solidifies it inside of me as something a little bit greater. Well, I think, you know, it shows up in your language even that, you know, standing on the shoulders of the giants that have gone before you is one aspect of it, but being the shoulders for others to stand on isn't also a part of your own mantra. It's also a part of your own identity in terms of how you want to grow. You know, it's interesting that you you mentioned Chet Holmes and year many years ago now, I worked with Chet Holmes and uh, Jay Abraham, I think. Yeah, Jay Abraham. Yeah, and yeah, so we did a couple of small workshops. I flew into San Francisco to do that, have a whole story around that. But it was an amazing experience. And Chet Holmes was a cool cat. And he was brilliant, as was Jay, of course. And I learned so much by working with them. And it really reset the trajectory for what I was doing in my business at that time. And it, to your point is that you know, sometimes we look at mentorship or we look at coaching and it can show up as well, what is it costing me as opposed to what am I getting as a return on my investment? And ultimately that investment is in me, you know, and sometimes it's hard to uh, wrap our minds around that. And but what that did for me back then was I've never I don't want to say never, but I am rarely go a long period of time without some kind of coaching, without some kind of mentorship, without really creating a group of like-minded entrepreneurs that I can have conversations with. I'm blessed today to have a management team and an executive team within the rain community and my businesses, my other businesses that are really kind of, we can push each other at that level. So it's really a great setup, but to your point, you have to create that. And you at some point had the awareness or the, I don't know, the foresight, if you will, to recognize that and whether that was beat into your head. Tell me a little bit more about how you got there, because you said something that I 100% believe in, right? And I live it, which, and I'm questioning myself all the time. It's not the goal, it's who do you need to become to achieve the goal? Because the goal goes away the minute you get there. And Guess what? You celebrate it, you go, woohoo, and then what, right? So you have to like the journey and you have to like wanting to become who you need to become to achieve the goal. So I heard that in some version of what you said. Can you expand on it from your perspective, Ryan? Absolutely. So Patrick, I I found success from 26 to 29, right? I I came on the, the ground floor of a startup web hosting company, came on as an affiliate manager, took over as president and CEO, went through a couple of capital raises and sold it off to a subsidiary of GoDaddy. So for all intents and purposes, at 29, I felt like I might as well have been King Midas himself. Everything I touched had to turn into gold. And you you certainly, my ego, I carried around a Sawzall with me, so I cut out larger door frames, right? There's just no (laughs) way I was fitting through the regular doors. And I was humbled pretty significantly at 30, where I started a high-risk merchant processing company, 
really didn't pay attention to some of the, the key variables that are required to scale one of those businesses. I ended up having to write a multiple six-figure check to shut down that business after about, you know, I don't know, 12 or 16 months in operation. So I'm sitting there looking, my, my truck has been repossessed. My rental properties are in foreclosure. There's no money left in the bank account. I'm literally letting people go. I think it was December 21st or 22nd, right, right before Christmas, kind of this combination and culmination of bad decisions. And as I was digging myself out of that hole, I started selling custom clothing of all things. I call it hand-to-hand combat, physically learning to be a haberdasher, right? I'd sold cars before. I knew I could sell. I said, the internet is bothering me right now. I don't want to continually focus on the internet and all the, the, the scamming that can go on there. I'm going to learn a craft that I can go anywhere in the world and, and make a couple dollars and did that, right? It was very exciting. Learned a new new craft, a new skill. But in that, I'm, I'm, I'm broke still, right? We just call it what it is. And I'm driving around in this 1998 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. It's gold on the outside. It's tan leather on the inside. It's got a bench seat in the middle and has a legitimate tape player. Yeah. Like it, if, if you're listening, you might not even know what a tape player is. It's these little square, square things that would slide in and, and there was physical tape that would play. And I found a, a set of Tony Robbins um, I don't even remember which Tony Robbins box set it was, yeah. but it was just on repeat as I was driving, I, living in Columbus, Ohio, I had clients in New York City and Chicago, Southern Kentucky, and I would hop in the car and drive. I'd be eight hours, one direction. I didn't have the money for a hotel, so I'd hop in the car and drive back as far as I could, sleep in a rest stop, right? And, and love that part of the hustle, we'll call it that. What I was really doing was completely fortifying this new belief system. And when I started listening to Right, we'll, we'll talk about Tony, Hobbin, Tony, Tony Robbins. We can talk about Jim Rohn. We can talk about some of these individuals that you know have created a new belief system in myself. All of them were talking about the, the power of a mastermind, right? Even into the, the work of, we'll say, Napoleon Hill. And so all these things are these new, I'll call them inputs into my psyche. That I'm saying, hold on. The times that I just failed and the times I'm coming out of, I literally thought I could do it all myself. And my results aren't the results that I want to have ever again, right? I, I need a, a tribe of mentors to run with. I need I need people to challenge me that have been further than I've been and want to still be able to provide impact and, and insight to them as well. But it was, again, more of a necessity thing than some sort of divine intervention. It was, I don't like being broke. I've, I've been successful before, and now I'm broke, and I'm digging myself out of this hole. What are the things I can do to create guardrails so I don't go back there? And... Um, right? Ruthless accountability is part of that. And having that strong group of individuals around me that when I make a commitment, they're going to hold my feet to the fire. I don't like coming up short. It's, it's one of those internal things where if I commit to something, I'm going to get it done. I need to get it done with excellence. And that that group, that peer group is paramount for that. And somehow I could never, I couldn't imagine not having that in my life. So you had that, you know, rare, I think they're rare, um, catastrophic failure in your life, you know, where you, you know, for whatever reason, you made the errors that you made, and you paid the ultimate price. When it comes to failure now, or the thought of failure, because I know you're still failing at some level in some way, we all do. How do you hold failure now compared to back then? Are you seeing the signs of failure along the way and going, hold on, you know, this is obviously a path that I don't want to go down or I've got to shift something. How do you look at failure? Here's my philosophy just quickly. And that is, I don't think people fa- fear failure. I think they fear the judgment of others should they fail. Therefore, they do not move forward, which to your point around the group that you put together you hold your, somebody holding you accountable and you go, you go okay, you don't want to have to park your pride and go, I didn't achieve that or I didn't do that. So 
I know I said a lot in that, but how do you see failure today, Ryan? Yeah, so it's it's a conversation that's probably a hybrid of Elon Musk and and Jeff Bezos, right? One of the the corporate edicts for me is fail early, fail often, and fail forward. And that I look at those failures as shortcomings, right? And momentary shortcomings that for me are just creating new new inputs into the, into the system. And when we when we set out for a direction, a path, the quicker I can come up with insight that that path wasn't exactly correct. And realize that's just part of the, I can say, divine journey, whatever, you know, whatever spirituality we might believe in. It's okay. I had to go down this path this far to learn something so I can apply it to get me to the place I want to arrive to in a more expedient fashion. So the failure side of things now, really, and I completely agree with what you're saying, Patrick, some of it's also tapping into self where I feel very comfortable and confident in who I am and what I do. And that level of internal security where I have things I do every morning, I'll call it to put myself in a level of personal production or personal power. And there are things I'll gladly share them. They're not, I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's, you know, can I spend five or 10 minutes in solitude? Some would call that meditation. But for me, it's just, can I just center myself? Can I just eliminate distraction? Can I read a little bit? Can I share what I'm reading so that other people can gain value from it? Can I, can I share with my wife and my daughter something I love, honor, or appreciate about them? Can I sweat? Can I, can I fuel my body with, with good resources? And I found that when I commit to doing those before the, the day starts, there's this internal level of certainty of no one's holding me accountable. No one knows if I'm doing this or not. And I'm not doing it to check a box. I'm doing it because there's an outcome. So there's a, there's a certainty now that it's just like this, this power switch I get to turn on, I'll call it, where when I walk in the door into the office, okay, things aren't going to go all correctly, right, in, in the micro. But in the macro, my belief is they are all going correctly, right? That shortcoming, that failure, as we'll call it, that is exactly what we needed to learn to get to where we said we wanted to arrive to. So let's honor that. Let's cherish that. Let's welcome it. Let's not beat ourselves up. Let's decide what can we learn from that. And then how do we scale past that very quickly? So where did you get your background? You know, you've built a business, a multi-million dollar business. You've gone on to do other things. Was it all learning as you go? You know, how did you kind of gain the knowledge you need to scale a business like that? I, I understand that you had your mentors and your coaches, but did you come out of university with a business degree? Were you a master's in something? Like, where did that background come from? Yeah, a really good question, Patrick. So college for me was mechanical engineering. And I knew I didn't want to be an engineer. It's because I was working for a gentleman that owned a manufacturing representative company. And he said, look, you get your engineering degree. I'll pay you 45 grand a year and you'll have a company car when you graduate. So sign me up. I'm in. That, that's all I needed to hear. Right. And math and science came fairly easy to me. They, they were almost second nature. So the degree wasn't necessarily challenging. But as luck would have it, or maybe not so luck, um, I started dating his daughter. And his daughter and I eventually parted ways and thus, thus parted our relationship. So, you know, wrapped up my, my course of studies there and then just jumped into, I'll call it the game of business. And that game of business from 22 until 30, Patrick, I can't say I read much. I can't say that I, I can't say I focused on much growth initiated um, activities, right? They were more of just showing up, going through the motions, allowing God-given ability or insight from a handful of people to, to help navigate those waters. And then after that failure, after that shortcoming of, of really going broke, didn't declare bankruptcy, but probably should have in hindsight, it just caused this internal curiosity for me. It started with not only the Tony Robbins side of things, but also why was I so adverse to conflict, right? What are some of the, the psychological underpinnings? What's So I started studying psychology and, and some, some different aspects that to me weren't quote unquote normal for the business owners that I knew. 
So I want to look inside first, like, why am I doing all these things? Why? It wasn't like I woke up one morning and the business was, was, you know, going to shit. It was a consistent path into the abyss. Well, why couldn't I face that? Why couldn't I have the tough conversations with employees or myself or my wife back then girlfriend and sort of really hone in on that and really focus on that. And so there's been this, I'll say ongoing childlike curiosity where I'm to the point from, so I, I grew a CBD company, Patrick, in 2016, and I exited to private equity in 2018. Not a huge exit, but enough that it was a fun time. It was worth worth the headache and the aggravation. Jumped into consulting and didn't know what was next, which eventually led to this and private equity and all the things I shared. And there's just this ongoing, consistent level of curiosity where if I was in my home office, you'd see just wall-to-wall books and it's not for show. I'm just generally curious. So when someone shares something in a book and and references another author, I stop reading the book. I hop on Amazon and I order the book because I I just want to know more. And some of those things I hold on to and I retain and I learn how to apply. And some, of course, go into the ether and I forget all about it. And it's like, it, it didn't even happen. And so I think for me, I'm to the point now, Patrick, where admittedly, I'm going back and forth between going back to university and getting an MBA. I've been accepted into, into Wharton to, to go back and, you know, progress my, my career. And that's part of it, right? Because there's, there's certainly benefit to that. But there's also still to me benefit of the, the company I'm sitting in now. We'll probably go through an IPO next year. Right? We'll, we'll list ourselves on the Toronto Exchange, kind of fit the right criteria for what makes sense there. It's like, okay, Maybe the, maybe the the MBA side comes right after an IPO or comes comes in the, the second season because I'm I'm torn back and forth of wanting the knowledge, wanting the experience of an MBA, but also saying like I'm learning at a fascinating rate by physically being in the game, rolling up my sleeves, making mistakes, and getting good good feedback. Yeah, I've always kind of followed the path myself. I'm not saying it's right, but my own belief system said, you know, I think that there's a lot of benefit in the university of life, you know, and so I've kind of followed that path myself, which is like I say, is not to say that that's right or even that it's wrong. It's just that's how I view it. So I do understand. I've, I have at times considered you know, saying maybe if I had an MBA, that would be that much better. But I, 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 I'm obviously not drinking that Kool-Aid because I never. So, but let's go back a little bit in terms of you've achieved a lot for a young man at a young age, regardless of the, you know, the failure that you talk about in that one business venture. But tell me a little bit about because here's your, here's your character, right? You've you've got these commitments to yourself. You have this drive to do something. When you look back, you know, those things are developed, but they're usually the seeds are planted as a young man. Now, in this case, do you see that, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about your parents or your dad or whatever that scenario was going, you know, go work for it, dude. If you want nice shoes, no problem. Go go figure out how to pay for it. You know, but were your parents entrepreneurial? What was their background? Did you have brothers and sisters that were kicking your ass and, you know, that you had to compete with? Like what, what? What do you think inspired you or what got you on this path? Yeah, Patrick, boy, that's that's a challenging question. My, my parents were maybe middle class, perhaps upper middle class. My father started climbing telephone poles for a company called Adelphia Cable back then, like physically a cable installer. Sure. And worked up to, to vice president of the organization after 15 or 20 years. And so he understood hard work and dedication, but didn't really jump into the entrepreneurial side, right? He was always an employee. And much the same with my mother. Right. So they that wasn't really their path. And as I traversed the, the landscape of my life, there was an inflection point when I started to become an entrepreneur where they're literally I'm, you know, 30 years old. 
They're saying, what the hell are you doing? Like, you're going to give up a 401k. You're, you have no stability. You got a family to worry about now. This is this is stupid, Ryan. Don't do this. You got a good thing with where you're at. Certainly, I've heard that story more than a handful of times in my life. So if I were to give credit to something, it would have to be that mentor that I had it from 14 to 21, where he's a business owner. And I didn't, I didn't know any business owners prior to him, at least not consciously. And I certainly, at that point in life, attached success to material possessions. And so he was, you know, lived in the same neighborhood as me. So there wasn't some sort of litmus test of he's doing better or worse than we are. But there were cars. And so he had two Cadillacs when I started working for him. Like, man, this guy's got Cadillacs, Cadillacs. That, those are wealthy people cars. Mm-hmm. And as, as I started taking care of his, I'll call it fleet of cars, the success just kept coming quicker and quicker, right? Where all of a sudden there's seven series BMWs, there's new motorcycles, there's boats. And it's just like this explosion. And I'm enamored. I'm a, I'm a car guy by nature. I, I, I actually sold cars and ran car dealerships from 22 to 26. I absolutely love, love that time in my life. But seeing these cars and being able to experience them, and, and he he had three daughters. He didn't he didn't have a son, so he kind of treated me like a surrogate son. He would toss me the keys to to one of the cars and say, "Just take it out for the night." And it was, man, there, there's there's such brilliance. And now, you know, in, in my season of life, being able to do the same thing for individuals and seeing, and he he showed me back then. It was 1998, 99. He literally handed me straight from the gut by Jack Welsh. It's like you need to read this book, and I'm. 16, 17, I can do the math somewhere in there. I'm like, yeah, sure. Right. I'm <laughs> stuck it on my bookshelf. I didn't pick up that book, Patrick, until I was 30. Mm. And now it's one of those, like, I probably listen to that book or read that book twice a year, three times a year. There's just so much wisdom from that book. And all that was, was him literally trying to show me these different ways to think, which was, which was really a lot of it to me in a good mentor relationship and in really creating who I am. It's not someone t- so, so much telling me what to think, but someone helping teach me how to think. And I think that's, that's one of those transitions that as I was an earlier entrepreneur, I was looking for the step-by-step, you know, go one, two to, to 25, like that's your path to success. And while that was beneficial to me, it was beneficial until it wasn't right. And then it becomes more of, well, how do you know this is even real? Is there a better way to do it? How did you come up with this idea? Have you considered these four variables? And what I found over the, over the course of my career is a handful of the mentors that I've had just absolutely despise that sort of conversation, right? You, you don't challenge the master, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, well, hold on a second here. Like, I have tremendous value and respect. I'm, I'm paying you. But how do I know this, this is the way? This is a way that you have created that I value and I'm going to implement. But what about these other things? And so there, there's been, I'll call it those pivotal seasons in life where those mentors come and go, right? Because I'm, I challenge the hierarchy. Yeah. You know, I love what you said there. A lot of what you just said there kind of, you know, little things going off in my head. You know, first off, you, what you described with your this particular mentor kind of reminds me a little bit of Kiyosaki's story, rich dad, poor dad kind of thing. And I know that's probably not the same scenario, but it reminded me of that scenario. And something that you just said really kind of hit me in a different way. And although I've heard it before, for some reason, it landed in an interesting way, which is not what to think, but how to think. And that is actually a real divergence. That, that itself, in terms of not only as a coach, but as somebody being coached is a divergence. Like it's, that is a a literal fork in the road. It's the difference between, you know, telling me, it's like almost like telling me, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You have the answers, but you ultimately have to define how 
your thinking. You know, you have to grow from that. It's just a really great. Uh, once again, it really landed for me as as quite. I don't know. It just stuck out for me, which I've heard before, but it just landed in a really cool way. Now, when you look at when you know how you define success, you said something in your conversation, Ryan, that was. Uh, you know, I think an interesting lesson to get as a young man, which is that material things at one point were what drove you. Now I'm sure you love the shiny things when you're up for it, but it's not what drives you. So what is it that number one drives you? And do you have a definition of success for you? I do. I'll, I'll go in reverse order. The definition sure. of success to me is being able to do what I want, when I want, how I want with who I want at all times. Beautiful. I want to hop on a plane and come see you. For me, I do want the private jet that I can call the pilot, have it fueled up, call 12 people on the way because we've got a great relationship and I know more people need to meet you. And I want to come out at a moment's notice because that's important to me. Mm-hmm. Now, the jet's not important. The jet's a byproduct of the experience. It just, I could also do it by flying Southwest. I could hop on a, a Greyhound and probably make it to you. There's, there's all types of ways but if I'm going to choose that reality, which and I believe we're we're conscious co-creators of our reality, why wouldn't I choose the best way to get there? And that's that is that private jet type of experience. So it's not necessarily a motivator. It ends up being the byproduct of what success means to me. Mm-hmm. And as I as I look at that, at those drivers for me, it's that combination of of getting to that ultimate level of success, as I'm air quoting, and then also the experiential side. So do I like the shiny things? Absolutely. Right. I I love getting to wear a nice watch because I enjoy how the watches are made and I enjoy the the stories behind them. But the most pivotal moment to me is getting able to go into the store and buy it, not wearing it around day to day. It's the experience of, oh, my gosh, I set this goal for myself. I created this path. I got to a point that exceeded what I said I would do to reward myself, which is a whole other fascinating conversation, a quick divergence. How many times in life? I've seen so many times in my own life that we create a goal for ourselves and then we get to the point where we said we'd reward ourselves and yet we don't actually reward ourselves, which is now rewiring our unconscious mind to not chase the things that we said that we want. Mm -hmm. And so I used to do this incessantly. Oh, when I get to this level, I'll do this thing. I get to the level, ah, it's not that important anymore. I don't really, eh, things have changed. It was literally rewiring my brain to stop pursuing, right? That reticular activating system of when I set that goal forth and I envision what it's like to be in that moment. And I know the man on my side that is required to get there because I can kind of go meet him. I can, you know, I'll call it timeline. I can travel and spend time with that version of myself. But then it becomes my responsibility to live, act, and think as though I'm that person. And that person would do the thing he said he was going to do, right? If I want a, a Patek Philippe watch when I hit a certain benchmark, well, the minute I hit that, the quicker I can go execute on that, the more is, is proving that model out in my mind, which then makes that success for me come much more rapidly. And I've proven that consistently over the past six or seven years. And, and maybe I can see on some point, if I was listening, a previous version of myself, I said, that is just utter, utter bullshit. There's no way that's true. You know, it's such an interesting point that you bring up. And, you know, your your version or your definition of success reminds me of a guest who gave me a great which kind of articulates what you said, said differently, but I love what you said. And, but he basically said success for me 
is when I am living the vision that I set for myself as I move down my path and go on my journey. And every time he reaches that vision, of course, a new vision is always in the works. But something that you're talking about right now is, are we stopping to celebrate that moment? Uh, I don't know if you've read the book yet, uh, that Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy, The Gap and the Gain. What a great book, you know, what a real... uh, insight into how we often think, which is we're always looking at what we don't have as opposed to the gains that we've made along the way to, you know, always be walking towards the horizon, thinking that we're going to get there and not celebrating along the way and honoring what we have achieved. And it's a fascinating shift in our psychology and in the way we think, which is what you're talking about in terms of how you view the world over the past several years. Can I ask you this question around when you look at I don't want to make any assumptions, but, you know, your business failure or your step into whatever business, I mean, it sounds like there's been more than one fork in the road, but is there an obvious fork in the road for you that went, that was a moment in time where I made a choice and that's why I find myself where I am today. Now, I always believe that wherever you are today is 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 exactly where you're supposed to be based on all the decisions you made. But was there a fork in the road for you that you went, yeah, no, I made that choice. There are three specific things that are popping in my mind. So I'll, I'll make them brief, but, but direct. Number one was I had met who's now my wife. She's my girlfriend at that point. We're living together. I come home. It's November, right before I've shut down the business in December. I come in. She's Italian. She's, she's, she's loud. She's gregarious. I walk in. The house is pretty much pitch black. And in November in Ohio, it gets dark at like four. So like, this is very strange. I know, I know she's home. I walk in and, and sit down and she goes, we need to talk. And I was, I had went on a date with another person, right? And, and some of her friends saw me. And this other person happened to be an ex-girlfriend that there's a lot of overlap, the uh, infidelity that, that transpired in the first six months of my relationship with my wife now. And she looks me in the eye and said, look, I, I don't know that we're going to be together. We're living together at this point. We were sharing bank accounts. She goes, I don't know that we're going to stay together. And she's calm as can be, which is very, very strange for a full-blooded Italian woman. Like, it's not really connecting. And she said, you know, I don't know if we're going to be together, Ryan, but I need to tell you, you're just capable of more. You're capable of showing up in a greater version than you are now. And it was just something about the way that she said it and the calmness and the way she delivered it that I pulled out my phone, took off the passcode, right? That iPhone, all the, all the stories I told myself, so no passcode on the phone, called the woman, said, look, can't ever, can't ever talk to you again, deleted the number, all the stuff. And still to this day, right, you can't see it, but if I were to you know, flip open my phone, there, there's, no, there's no passcode. Right. It, it's, it's part of this thing of who I am now. So that was one very large divergence was this belief from someone else and me being a greater version of who I am that I was showing up. The second part would have been an experience with a, a mentor, right? A, a men's training called Wake Up Warrior that's that's created by a gentleman named Garrett J. White. And it was something called Warrior Week. It's a it's a five-day immersion experience that is it shifts your perspective of reality. And it's designed to do that. It was one of those things I came out on the backside of that and said, man, I've been lying to myself. I've been lying to people and not really lying in the way that I might have previously lied, but just, I'm just not owning the actual truth of what I want, who I am, what I stand for. Cause I have these internal fears and beliefs that if I am who I say that I am, that people might leave me. And it's, it's scary to be alone. So that was pretty impactful getting through that then the third was a psychedelic experience, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm a big believer in, in exploring the bounds of consciousness. And I had a, a psilocybin experience. I was connected to the group from MAPS. 
and they were able to send me over, uh, I know, some mushroom spores to get to experience. And I remember sitting, I had my wife as a spotter. It was a Saturday. And I'm sitting there looking at, we have a, a big, beautiful bay window. And it's October, the leaves are changing. And for the first time in my life, I can actually feel love and connection to everything. I can feel it to my wife. I can feel it to nature. I can feel it to the, to the, the house that we live in. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my gosh, we're this thing of we're all connected. We're all one. We all come from the same source. Sure, those are all words. But in that moment, I could feel it. And with how I work, once I can feel something once, I can keep revisiting that. I don't need additional experiences per se. It's I remember that and I can codify that inside myself and I can go back there when I start to lose that sense of reality. I can go back to each one of those three experiences and it's it's right there right now. And it's like, okay, hold on. I'm not in alignment. I'm not telling the truth to myself. I'm, I'm not honoring you know that love and connection. I'm, I'm, I'm capable of doing more. And th- those are those... I call them guardrails, right? We're going through this 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 road of life, and those those things keep me on the right road. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you talk about those experiences. Of course, I had many of those experiences as a young man growing up, and uh, they were never about connecting with consciousness. They were about escaping life. So it's a, <laughs> it can be a, a very dramatic shift of the reality of what we're trying to achieve. So good for you. You know, um, it's interesting that you you mentioned that your wife, that relationship, that kind of fork in the road moment. And I think that most men, I don't want to say that, that would be, un, that would be a, a not true statement. Many men don't really honor the power that a significant other, a wife can give them in terms of support, in terms of guidance, in terms of a view of themselves that they can't see. And your wife, you know, so my wife used to say to me when she first met me, we used to joke, you know, she said, you're my favorite Neanderthal, right? So it was like, you know, it was that real understanding. And I and I realized in that moment with Stephanie, when she said uh, at some point, you know, that you can be more than you are trying to be, you know, you, you know, the, and I've shared many stories with that. And then I read a quote that a diamond, you know, is just a chunk of coal put under a great deal of pressure. And I realized how much pressure she put on me, but not in a, I don't know, not in a, a mean way or not in a, in a, a make wrong kind of way. She just always nudged and encouraged me to be more than I could be, to redefine and to consider how I'm showing up and who I'm being in the context of my life. And that's really in that moment of time that your, your wife at that point said, hey, listen, dude, you can pick it up, pick up your game, right? And of course, you were inspired to do so because of that one, that little moment in time. So I, I think it's a great story. And I think many men can benefit from just taking a moment to step back and consider who their wives are in their life and how they can show up. That's just my own observation of it. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, Patrick. I mean, I, I like to simplify things, right? It just, it keeps it easier for my mind. So I look at all of life fits into four distinct buckets, right? Your body, your being or connection to something greater than yourself, the balance, right? The balance of relationships in your life. And then a business quadrant based around money. And I found just over and over again, especially I speak to, to myself as a man, I'll focus on my body and I'll focus on my business intently, right? I'll go to the gym, I'll sweat up, I'll, I'll do all this stuff. And I'm building a table and it's uneven, right? Because I'm not building those other two legs. I'm not I'm not building a, a level of spiritual connection to whatever that is, right? This is sort of not a religious conversation, just more of, there has to be something in the universe that's greater than who I am in this moment. And then that, that relationship side and really pouring in and being able to sit with the uncomfortable nature of 
my wife's saying, look, you're being a real asshole today. Right? You just, you came home from work. I don't know what went on today. You said it was a good day, but you're really being a jerk right now. Can you, can you, can you shift that? And I'm not even aware of it, right? Because I'm in this production mode. I'm in this, you know, I'll say divide and conquer mode that comes inside the four walls of a business. And when I get home, my wife doesn't want conquer Ryan there. <laughs> she wants, <laughs> she wants to support her husband. She, sure. she doesn't want to be asked why didn't these things get done or fine, I'll just handle it. Where to me, I'm 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 still in that production mode. I'm just solving problems, which I think as entrepreneurs, that's really what we get paid to do. Sure. She doesn't want that. She wants, she wants connection. She wants that that love and appreciation. So it's Anytime to me that I, I get to sit with a business owner on more of that consulting side, so look, we can consult in business all we want, but if if we don't look at the totality of your life right now, that business is only going to get so big, and that's so big, it might be past the goals you you can see for yourself. It might be so much greater than you've experienced, but there's going to be parts that become deficient as well. And we should probably honor those at the same time. Well, I think that you know often we, and I'm sure that in your experience of you know co- coaching other men uh, and women too, but I think. You know, I'm 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 making an assumption that you're you have a focus for men, young men, or men in general, in terms of the support that you provide. But there's there is a place where, when we look at business and we look at mindset and what has to be considered in that journey of developing a different or shifting a mindset, there is a, a part of it that probably lands as pretty esoteric to people. You know, when you start talking about consciousness and the, you know, the connection and that you are just consciousness or that you are just God or whatever that conversation might get to, when you're working with men, and just because I know I have a number of men as listeners here, What's the guidance that you would give? Is there a observation that you've made over the years in working with men or in yourself that says, you know, if you're bumping up against this or if you're having these kinds of experiences or these kinds of results, is there something that would be a flag that you would say, you know, something, if you got this, go, got this going on, here's some things that you should consider? Absolutely. What an incredible question. Thanks for asking it, Patrick. So this is, this is a fascinating thing to me where, I can't speak for you Canadians, but I, I can certainly speak for us in, in the States. <laughs> okay, where... okay, let's, okay, we're all just people here, okay? We're all just consciousness. Here we go. Go ahead. So, so from this level of all being consciousness, <laughs> right, we'll look at the hero's journey. We'll look at the story that has been ingrained in us for, at least for me, my entire life. Every story, every book, every every fiction tale has this, this journey we have to go on where we have to overcome resistance. And the hero's journey would say you have to do it twice, and you get to the top, and you just keep going. It's this never-ending circle. And what I found with so many men is, why did you accept that to be the truth? There is a point along a journey where, to me, certainly there are these little resistance points, but it's not friction. You don't have to go through life, you know, bumping heads with people young and people to get your point across. And when you find yourself defaulting to that, it's probably time to take that step back and say, is this really serving me? And right again, no matter what your belief system is, whatever the religion is or lack thereof a religion, it's still the fact of, do you enjoy operating your life that way of having resistance around every corner, of having to push through doors with brute force? Or would it be easier just to be able to snap your fingers and create? Because to me, I, I do adhere to that point of, you know, whether we're, we're all living gods on earth or whether we're connected to a god or to a source. When I look at it, the, the version of life that I adhere to is I don't believe that God has to struggle whatever God is to make it rain. I feel like, yeah, it's just time for it to rain and poof, it rains. Creation becomes instant, effortless, enjoyable, fun. Well, if we're made in those lights and we're part of that, then when we're experiencing a reality that is void of those experiences, 
there is a misalignment somewhere. Is a misalignment in who we are? Is our ego being too loud? Are, are we too set in our ways? Are we not open to the new feedback that could exist all around us? Right. If, again, if we're those conscious co-creators of our reality, why am I creating this? Is because I'm convinced that the only way I can be successful is I keep conquering and conquering and conquering. Well, right. As, as I'm growing my business that I sit in now, we're to the point of our growth evolution where we have to acquire new businesses. Right. It's just the quickest way to, to market market share. Well, there's multiple ways to acquire a business. One is that, say, kind of hostile takeover. You get some really intelligent people around you, you deal with people that are less sophisticated, and you kind of work them over a little bit, especially in a new and emerging market. That's not necessarily a challenge per se, but that's that's that resistance side of things where I like to co-create with people. I like to sit down and say, here's where we're going. Can you see that? Let's create a win for everybody involved where you're capitalized now. You're going to get recapitalized later in the future because that's, that's in flow. That's effortless. These shouldn't be these... You shouldn't sit across from me being convinced I'm going to screw you and I'm trying to take you for every nickel because that creates that resistance. And I don't want that when I go to market because same thing's going to happen on the next, next next side of life. And so as I've stepped into that, Patrick, over and over again, I've just, again, can I can I remain calm? Can I take those deep breaths? Can I do some box breathing? Can I can I do some things to stay in that in that neutral space, right? Kind of that above the line thought processes. Man, life just becomes fun. It becomes this, this effortless creation. And effortless, right, can be qual- quantified the way you want it to be. I certainly have things to overcome, just as we all do. But I don't remember the last time I went to bed saying, man, this is just so challenging. I, what am I going to do here? It's like the answers just keep coming. Things just keep keep coming. It's just, it's, it's just in flow, if you will. You've said so much in that, and I'm I'm not even sure where to where to take it on because there's so many points of entry. But it's I'll say one thing that you just mentioned. That, you know, Stephanie, my wife Stephanie and I just did a we just literally dropped a podcast last night that I think will go out this week about understanding the difference between reacting and responding, and how often people are in reaction mode as opposed to having that moment to say, how do I want to respond? And understanding that they take responsibility for that. In other words, why are you always reacting, flying off the handle and or being a victim and or the world is you know doing shit to me, whatever that story is, as opposed to just taking a breath for a moment and seeing how you respond. And, and we got into a whole different tangent on that, but something that you said just triggered just how important that is. You know, there was another you know, thing that you mentioned in all of that, and I got to kind of tap into it because like my brain is all over the place right now. Something that you said around conscious creation and understanding that our life is a reflection, not just of what we're doing, but who we're being. And that comes down to what we started the conversation earlier, which is, you know, how are you showing up? Who are you becoming to achieve the goal you want to achieve. And if you don't really have that vision, you're going to wander around pretty aimlessly and probably and possibly live a pretty unfulfilled life in in what you're doing in that regard. Now, when you consider the business and how you operate, you know, and you like to collaborate, when you look at your existing business and your businesses overall, are you really consciously, and I have a fundamental philosophy that there's three things that we have to pay attention to as business owners, and that is culture, environment, and the community that we create. So in other words, are we setting up a community of like-minded individuals? Do we have a culture that's defined? Have we created an environment for people to actually live that culture, to actually live into that being that community? 
I hear that in what you're saying. Is that a conscious part of what you've done or is that just how things unfold, Ryan? It's turned into something conscious in the past two years, right? Where I can't help but be, I'll say, a level of self-reflective on things that have been enjoyable and things that I might have done differently. Mm-hmm. Not from a sense of, of judgment, shame or guilt, none of those negative emotions, just acknowledgement of what is or what has been. And as I as I look forward into the future inside the business that I own, I couldn't agree with you more, right? There's the cultural fit of to me, a Jack Welsh principle, right? That radical candor and accountability. And not that he was the first, but that's the first that, that I certainly remember hearing it. And it's, gosh, I, I can deliver a message to someone that is clear, concise, honest, but not have to be rude about it. Look, you, you fell short of this. We both committed to this. How do we not have you fall short again? Mm-hmm. That's, that is a cultural atmosphere where an old version of myself would have said, gosh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to demoralize that person. It's going to beat that person up. But we've created a system inside the businesses where that feedback channel goes both ways. There are certainly times where as, as the CEO, I make a commitment and something goes, goes awry and I fall short and I get called on the carpet with that same level of direct frustration that, um, that I might ex- extend to other people. So the cultural aspect is is incredibly important. One of the the fascinating parts for me, Patrick, is this business went from 5 million to 11 to 24 to 40 to 80, give or take 75, 80. And every new year, it's almost like it's an entirely new business, right? That that exponential growth year over year where the the culture, certainly it's a a work in progress, but even the the actual individuals that are supporting us, they almost have to re-interview for the role every year, not because they're bad. They're, they're incredible people. But I use the sales manager example. If my business is $20 million a year and I've got five sales guys and we're regional, the skill set of that individual is much different than a $100 million a year multinational organization that, that's got levels of, of complexity to it. And it's not that that first individual can't work their way into that new role. They certainly might be able to. But for me, the speed at which we're growing, it's actually better to have those meetings and say, look, we're going to bring in somebody for, for you to learn from. It's not necessarily going to be a replacement. It's going to be a, an internal mentorship role as well, because I can't have people paying. I can't be paying people to learn on the job as we keep rapidly expanding, or it's going to start to slow down and blunt our growth, which has been this kind of unique time we're in right now of just the acknowledgement of, and I, I have my hand raised for that as well, Patrick. It's mm-hmm. I've got my board and I share with them very candidly. I'm an owner of the company, so I, I call it, I get to cheat. I'm going to win no matter what. When I no longer am two to three years ahead of where we're at as a business, you guys have to replace me. I don't want to be the reason why we're, I can't be learning on the job. I've got to be ahead of the curve. And if not, I need, I need removed, which is a, a whole new fascinating thing to have to go through. Well, man, you just, I love these conversations, you know, and because you're, you can have these conversations at a philosophical level, but you're in it, you're, you're actually living it in a really cool way. And, you know, it's fundamental that, you know, within the team, you made so many really cool points. Like high performance is a result of low tolerances. When we create a culture of low tolerances, of course, then high performance results if we have agreements in place, if we have an understanding. It's like, you know, coming back, have a, having a background of working with professional athletes in professional sports as well as Olympic class because of my association and the businesses that I've had in the past is when you're in that dressing room, you know, sometimes the coach will literally lock the door and you know, hammer shit out with each and every single guy within that group so that they're not operating on top of each other. You're not picking up the puck. What are you, you know, your head is down. You're, you know, you're not keeping up with the play. Your fitness level isn't where it could be or should be to be on a first line. I mean, these are really direct conversations, but 
if you have the fundamental philosophy that high performance is a result of low tolerances, then of course, what are you going to tolerate? And you have to keep up in your game. So that's a cultural thing that is, guess what? To your point is that if you're, you know, I use the, in that context, I use the example of a car. You know, we look at, you know, a, you know, a hundred thousand dollar Audi versus a, you know, $250,000 Porsche and the, you know, really cool cars, but the difference between performance is significant because the tolerances on the Porsche are much higher than if you were to go to a Ferrari and then eventually to a supercar, you know, every nut, bowl, screw is actually, you know, a next level of tolerance in terms of, in, in order to meet the demands that are being put on it as individuals, as CEOs, as entrepreneurs, there could easily come a point, and I'm, and I'm having this because you brought it up, you, and I think it's so insightful, is that, you know, this business may outgrow me. And I have to be surrounded by people that are way smarter than me to in actually live into my vision, to have, have us achieve a result that we want or that I want for that business. So you're stepping back from what I'm hearing you're saying, even with the board, as your guys going, guys, at some point, if I'm not living up, if I can't deliver on what I need to as a CEO, punt me, replace me, kick me to the curb, <laughs> whatever that extreme might be. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Patrick, one of these is, is I've really created, I understand that I'm, I'm motivated by a little bit more of an away from motivation than a towards, yeah. probably 50-50 in that, which maybe is an anomaly to itself. But if I go back to the, the shoe example when I was young, yeah, go out and get it. You're just going to have to earn it. I needed that, that almost internal accountability. Well, the same thing has happened inside this company where I realized in order for us to go public and to have that, I have to, I needed to literally or decided to issue stock to every employee inside the company now because it, it shifted that I'm now responsible to shareholders. So the decisions aren't based off the ego of needing to be right. The decisions are based off, based off of how do I increase the enterprise value of the organization so there's a largest return for shareholders. Now, certainly the employees may or may not understand that, but it started to create this whole different container to view our business through, where it's, if I'm not multiple steps ahead, if I don't have these things built in place as a shareholder and happen to be, of course, a larger shareholder, from that side of the table, I need somebody more equipped in the seat because my return on investment capital is much greater. It's 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 this dissolving again of that ego, of that back and forth, and saying, "Man, that's not really resistance. That that's a beautiful thing to get to experience when the business has outgrown you." Instead of having that thing of shame, fear, guilt, sadness, right? What some of the negative emotions might go through. To me, it's almost like my twelve year old daughter. I'm sure I'm going to be sad when she goes to college. But on the other side, it's man, what a beautiful gift that I've I've got 18 years of getting her to this this point where she can go off to college and make all the dumb dumb decisions I or dumb mistakes that I did. It's such an, an interesting journey, you know. I, we, once again, I use athletes as an example, but I also know business owners who have retired and or sold. And you know, the question becomes, you know, I just had this conversation with a, another friend of ours who exited a position, you know, government position. But you know, the the question for her that she got to that she didn't really consider before is who am I if I'm not that? And I'll tell you what, that really can mess people up if they walk away or haven't asked themselves that question prior to an exit. And uh, it's a really powerful question to consider, you know, is who am I if I'm not this? And then have an answer for that question, which 
it sounds like you do. I want to go back on something that we talked about, and I think it's so important for entrepreneurs. And, and of course, you know, a lot of who uh, I speak to over the past 20 years, I, you know, the Real Estate Investment Network has been a big part of my life. I own other businesses, but Rain has been, it's a national organization that teaches business owners, really. They're real estate investors, but we treat our real estate investing like a business. That's how, that's the fundamental philosophy. It's the cornerstone. We don't sell real estate. So what we're doing is we're supporting people through economic research. The point of all of this is that along the way we face challenges, you know, whether it be real estate as a business or any business, but something you said earlier that was that I don't want to step over, which is resistance or when you're kind of hitting those challenges, those hurdles, those that grinding spot, you don't hold that as a negative per se. You look at it as resistance I look at it as resistance, and the only way I could really wrap my mind around it is if I go to the gym, and we haven't even talked about you and your workouts, if I go to the gym, I may not want to lift that extra weight, but in the back of my mind, number one, I want to be challenged to lift it, and I know that by lifting it, by busting through that resistance, I grow stronger. So I look at very much philosophically, I look at business and life very much that way. I look at the resistance that I'm facing, and Sometimes I don't want to have to lift that weight. Sometimes I don't want to have to deal with it. The nature of businesses that, to your point, is your problem solving. It's really just what is sometimes <laughs> you do it every day, you're solving a problem. And so that's the resistance, which then makes you stronger and which helps grow the business. So where was I going with that long rant question? When you, oh, that's what, that's really what it was. Is that a philosophical, is that a, a mental shift that you've consciously made over the years that when you see these things show up, you ask yourself, what questions? I, I won't put words in your mouth, but what are the questions you would ask yourself? The first and maybe even the only question I end up asking myself is, what lesson, like, why did I put this here? What lesson do I need to learn from this? Because I believe that I created the experience. Okay, got it. Yep. And so it's like, okay, there is resistance. I'm acknowledging it. It, it is it is palpable. There is something there. I can keep my head down and I, keep, I can keep alcohol just pounding through, which... Right, I'm, I'm 6'2", 265 pounds. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with pounding through things, right? Like that's, that's, that's second nature, but that's not necessarily why I put the thing there. And sometimes it might be. Sometimes it might be as I sit back and say, why is this here? Oh, it's to remind me that I can knock down a door. Maybe that is the lesson that I'm supposed to, to garnish from this environment. But very rarely is that the case. Quite often it's looks, uh, when, when I feel that level of resistance, my default now is to get simple. It's like simplicity. Anytime there's a level of resistance, it's almost always because I've overcomplicated something, which is inherent nature of who I am. Mm. And so it's it's this back and forth to me of, okay, if I'm creating reality, why did I create this? What do I need to learn from it? Have I learned the lesson before? Obviously not if I create it again. And then how do I shift through it without there having, I'll just call it a, a bunch of strife, right? And certainly there are seasons. There are seasons that I go through where I there is strife. There is arguments and frustration. They try to come from a place of neutrality, but nonetheless, they exist. I, I certainly don't want to say it, share it's all sunshine and roses and we just get to sit back and meditate and magically things move out of our way. It takes very decisive action. But sometimes the action is, I'll take the business I'm sitting in now. As we start to go through and, and prep for an IPO, there are things that we are going through that many people in the organization have never experienced. And so when in my experience, when we get uncomfortable, we default to some very primitive, primitive methodologies. 
And most people, when they get uncomfortable, want to lock in, plant their feet, and, and put up resistance. Well, that's just from a lack of understanding. That's from not having a clear path. That's from not being enrolled in the vision. That's that's not supporting them from their greatest good. And so I can fight through that. And I can say, just do your damn job. I don't care that you don't understand. And that is a path that sometimes we have to go down. But quite often it's, and tell me why you're feeling this way. Where did this come from? Have you been here before? If you had been here before, what would what would that version of you be doing right now? How can I help support you in doing that versus what we're doing now? And it's just a series of asking questions to get somebody to open up their mind for the possibilities that are already right in front of them. But occasionally, right, I'm certainly far from perfect. You can ask my wife or any of my coworkers. It's, I'm nowhere close. Sometimes I get frustrated. I'm like, okay, we've been through this, this uh, circular conversation for an hour. Now it's time just to, to put the rubber to the road and do your damn job. It's because I said so. And sometimes we get there. But again, if you've co- if you've created the context for that relationship within your your executive team or within your team overall, if you have that culture, as difficult and uncomfortable as those conversations are, ultimately that's what moves you forward. And you know, I think the biggest thing that I've learned over the years, you know, back to something you said earlier around conflict or confrontation, is that if we can agree that we're not taking things personally and that it's not intended personally, it changes the game. It's, you know, it's, you know, my wife and I talk about, you know, we're both a personalities. We're both entrepreneurs. She's had business for many, many years. And when we come together as a couple, you bet we lock horns, but, you know, and we argue, but the fundamental differences were never mean we're never, it's never about things taken. And it's not that we don't raise our voices because we do, but it is, we, we aren't throwing personal shots across the bow. And we're actually being very conscious that we're saying things that aren't intended to be mean. They're actually makes you think once again, not being reactive, being responsive and thinking through how you're going to have that conversation. But that goes for, I think anybody on your team, you know, you have to take responsibility for you know, the circumstances that you're creating in, in terms of how you're communicating. And even if at some point you're saying, cause I said, so it, it was a long path or it was a path to get there. It's not your first response. It's like your last response. It, it is the Hail Mary in the fourth quarter with two seconds left with a broken leg and a fractured ankle. It, at some point, as they say, the show must go on and having circular conversations just doesn't get us there. So tell me a little bit, you know, let's get into uh, one of the pillars that you talked about or one of the things that you talk about is around the physicalness. So at this point, I'm north of 60. My workout routine has changed dramatically from when I was the other side, you know, when I was farther south of 60 and and for all sorts of reasons. I, you know, I have, that's not an excuse. It's just I realize that I have different goals around the physicality. I live on five acres of land. I work, you know, I work, I do what I do outside. I love to sweat and get dirty and knock things down and build things up. And, but that's all part of the, what I need physically. Now you, uh, at this point probably do a number of those things, but you're, you train, you work out. I used to love the gym. I was in there six and seven days a week with a trainer for many years. What is it for you? Like, what was your journey around, uh, lifting to, you know, to be as big and strong and were you a bodybuilder at some point? What was, were you competing? How was it for you? Yeah. So, so Patrick growing up, I'm, 
I was a scrawny kid, right? I was a late bloomer. I, I don't know that. I think I graduated high school, perhaps 6'2", but maybe 175 pounds soaking wet with lead boots on, right? I certainly wasn't a, a big muscular guy. I was really, But that's really not wet. small. That's still, at 6'2", it's a little, it's a little slim, but yeah. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, but I wasn't, I wasn't an all-star <laughs> athlete. I wasn't, you yeah, know, yeah. overtly muscular. I sure. was, as I say, just a late bloomer and, and went to college freshman year and found right a, an endless food food hall pass so I could eat more food, found some guys that worked out quite often and went from being the, the weakest, scrawniest guy in the weight room in high school to now someone that in, in the college environment, I didn't care all that much about drinking, not because of a judgment or because of a health thing. It just wasn't an important aspect to me at that moment in life. So I'm working out, I'm training, and of, of, maybe I shouldn't say of course, but for me it was of course, I eventually get offered steroids, right? And it's like, so I'm 19 years old. I still haven't, I wish I could go back in time in theory because I hadn't maximized my natural growth potentialities. No, of course. And so, right, start taking steroids. And so I come back from, from college my freshman year. I think I'm 240, right? I go from 170 to 240. But I look at the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. It's like somebody literally yeah. just high blood pressure, not not healthy at all, didn't understand what I was doing. But man, I was strong like an ox and felt, felt good for that. That eventually led over um, just that level of curiosity that I have as a person that eventually led into competitive bodybuilding and a whole different understanding of what's going on inside the body. I was an amateur bodybuilder for, uh, let's say, six or seven years, right? Competitions, locals, so, some regional things did OK, but not not incredibly well. And then from 30, right, kind of that same time where my wife sat down and said all those things, she started saying, like, look, I want you around a long time and how you're living your life. You're not going to be around a long time. Ah, oh, shoot. Okay. So I'm, I'm an all gas or all brakes type of guy in my life. So I went from all types of steroids and growth hormone and everything that you're maybe not supposed to do. I was, that was my life to, I want to take all that stuff and throw it away. I'm going to go cold Turkey, which also is not a good thing because my body over the past nine or 10 years wasn't producing testosterone anymore. So it has taken the past eight years to really figure out the right cadence of, of how my body responds to certain certain uh, stimuli. And so for me, Patrick, right now, it's a lot more about mitochondria efficiency. It's much more about energy levels. It's much more about decreasing cellular age. It's about lowering inflammation. The byproduct of just years in the weight room are I still carry around a lot of muscle mass, which is neither here nor there for me at this at this moment, right? If, if I could get smaller, I'd be, be happy with that. I'm not training like a power lifter or bodybuilder anymore. It's, you know, infrared saunas, it's cold submersions, it's grounding myself and walking outside for 20 or 30 minutes. It's um, vibration plates, it, right? It's, it's these things. And certainly I, I still like the endorphin rush of, you know, lifting heavy weights, but that's not the driver anymore. The driver is Right. I'm, I'm 38. My cellular age now I've got it down to 34. So I'm, you know, the cellular side, I'm at least from some some tests, I'm kind of aging in reverse. I'm really, really focused on how do I how do I make sure my brain stays healthy? My family has a history of of Alzheimer's and dementia. And so knowing that is allowing me to focus on that now versus before it's too late. And right, looking at inflammation is a key indicator of that. And looking at magnesium deficiencies typically being a key indicator of that. And some things that go on that I can be prepared for that. I, I get blood panels done every quarter and um, I take a, a series of supplements. Some are injectable, some are, some are pill-based to really maximize what my body's potential is. And so the physical attributes that are associated with that are a, a distant byproduct of, of that desired state, which is just how, how healthy can I be for how long? I'd, like, I'd love to see great grandchildren in my life before I pass. I'd love to see what I'm capable of. 
Well, you know, I, I was, you know, I've trained for many, many years. It's been a big part of my life, you know, probably since 30, even before that, but where I was not as intentional, but I was very active. And when I look at when I got into training and back, you know, it's not like back then, I don't want to say it that way, but there was a time where, you know, being, you know, working out on a regular basis in the eighties was not looked upon as a cool thing to do. Right. So for me, you know, people are going, yeah, well, what are you going to die of nothing? And I went, it's not about living longer necessarily. It's about the quality of my life to that day that I check out, you know, and I am blessed to have some genetics. My mom's 95 and she's still surprisingly alert and like shockingly alert. She, we could, she could have this conversation as long as she had her hearing aid in. She's not as physically active. She can't, you know, she, but all she ever did was walk. So I learned at an early age that, you know, there's a difference between wellness and fitness. And so uh, you could be far more fit than I am, but just from sheer walking and activity, my wellness level is maybe even better than yours, right? And as I've gotten older, and to your point, I do lots of supplements and I do all the things that look after myself. Magnesium is is a, a is a must for me these days, I'm noticing. But uh, I've started doing, uh, you know, cold plunges and spending time. I'm, I'm not going to cover our pool. It is Canada. It does get freaking cold in here. And it, although we don't get, you know, the colder temperatures of other provinces, it gets freaking cold. So I'm going to uh, leave my pool open this winter, I've decided. And uh, I've been going in anywhere from five to 10 minutes. I'm up to about eight to 10 minutes right now. And I don't know if I'll go longer. i I have no idea. I don't think it's necessary, but there's, I guess, some bragging rights if I can hang out longer. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know that there's any benefits uh, physically to it. So when you look at how you see yourself, you know, with your family and, you know, you've mentioned your wife a couple of times, how important or how, and there would be a rhetorical question if I said, how important is your wife to your success? So I'm, I'm trying to I guess, pull out of you in terms of how important is that relationship for you, aside from your, you know, the happiness within your relationship, but even to your success in business and and how you view life overall? Yeah. So Patrick, that's a, that's a fascinating question right now. And I pride myself on, on just shooting it straight. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's happened for my wife and I is I adhere to the, the Japanese manufacturing principle of Kaizen. Right. Consistent, small, incremental improvement mm-hmm. is really all that ends up meaning. And that's part of how I live my life. And it's, it's, it's important to me as a person. And as I have become more, I'll use the term successful. I don't even know if that's really right, what the right term is. But it's afforded my family with some luxuries that we didn't have when we started. Right. My wife doesn't have to work if she doesn't want to. We have a couple of horses. My wife and my daughter, you know, are equestrian athletes. And, and life is really, really good. But what's happening is I keep growing and my perspective and perception of reality is much different than it was four, five, six years ago. And her growth trajectory is divinely hers. It's just different than mine. It's not as important for her to grow at the same capacity. Mm-hmm. And so we're at this unique point in our relationship where we're, we're, we still get along incredibly well. There's no arguments. There's no things like that. But what we're going through is, is seeking this level of commonality all of a sudden where I'm saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to go you know, help build out a, a Gulfstream G400. Like that's, I'm gonna go down to Savannah and build one out and it takes two and a half years. And she's sitting there saying like, wait, we're gonna do what? Like, how much is that? What, what, what? And I'm, well, come on, like everything works out the right way. And so there's this, 
there's this little bit of, uh, I'll say, fluidity to us finding that that central solid point. But the central solid point is still based around mutual love, appreciation, admiration, respect, which to me are those those core competencies. And I want to support her and do support her in whatever things are that that are important to her, which is teaching me this whole new lesson of, you know, part of me says, well, it wouldn't it be great to, to have that A-type personality, that person that's next to me that's that's going out and, and busting tail like I'm busting tail. And the answer is honestly, probably not for me. Like I say that I want that, but the reality is I probably don't want that at all. Mm -hmm. I just in this moment think about it because it's not my experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a back and forth right now where she's paramount to, to the success, the, the, the family portion of my life and having people that support me that support she supports my vision she supports where i'm going she's she's my biggest fan she's she's an incredible partner but there's more to a partnership than just the support from how i look at it so it's a fun season for me it's a season of growth a season for growth for both of us well it's, those are fascinating conversations to have you know having been with stephanie for 30 years we've gone through you know different periods and learnings together as a couple but ultimately we are always committed to the relationship and the commitment to the relationship always came first and so we then would go through the difficult conversations and and what i'm hearing from you and i don't know if you you haven't mentioned it which is interesting and i suspect that just was the way the conversation went but that becomes to me the first thing i look at in saying there's a mis it's not even a misalignment there's a realization of that your values have changed and as our values shift and change it doesn't necessarily mean that the person that is in our life or that the people we have around us, that their values are the same as ours or that they align. It doesn't mean their values are wrong and yours are right. It just means, holy cow, my values have shifted. And as a, as a parent and, you know, my daughter used to be paramount, like that was my highest value. Well, okay. You know, she's 38 years old. She's moved on. You know, she's got two grandchildren, you know, they're really important. She gets pissed off sometimes because I'll hug them before I hug her. You know, it's just, we joke about it, but it's an interesting shift of values. That's all it is. And so when we have that awareness, it changes the conversation. It doesn't make anybody wrong. It's actually acknowledging the other person's values. And so it's an interesting place to be. And I really relate to uh, what you're going through. So uh, thanks for sharing that. I think there's lots of lessons in that for anybody is to realize that you go through these, you know, we'll use the seasons of time. And that is also the case in terms of relationship. That's been my experience. Well, I couldn't agree more. And to me, as, as I articulate these, it's also important to share from where I sit, it's that it's that honor and respect for where we're at. It's it's just a moment in time. It's not- of course. We're not, again, it'd be different if there was this catastrophic, you know, butting of heads all the time. She knows that's not how I operate. Now, again, she, she's a full-blooded, spicy Italian, so her default is a little bit of loudness, a little bit of butting heads. But it, it's just the acknowledgement of, right, we've created a system where we check in with each other every week. I love and, it. Right, how did that go? What are the things that we want to see more of? What are some things we'd like to see less of? Kind of some of the same one-to-one -one cadences I run inside the business. We've just created our own internal family version of this because I don't have to guess, right? I'm still a dumb man at heart. Like you tell me what you need instead of having me guess. And I'll probably pull it off pretty well. If you leave me to guess, it's 50, 50 at best. And my wife would say it's probably pretty generous. You know, something is that what I think that you're shining a light on here, Ryan, that so many step over is that it just really boils down to communication and the willingness to have what may feel like difficult conversations and 
they don't have to be though. They don't have to be seen as difficult conversations, although sometimes that's how they land, especially if you're being really aware or cognizant of maybe what some of her buttons might be or she being what are you know what's his triggers you know like we're really good at you know as <laughs> we're good at pushing each other's buttons i mean that's what we do the best sometimes right so when you have that awareness however it is really boiling down to having that communication and i think that's a it's a great message for anybody listening is to understand is that it doesn't matter at what level at what age when you're in partnership you're going to have I guess, divergence in, and moments in time where you're going to have to sit down and step back and communicate and, and actually have a discussion about, well, what's, what's driving this? Where are we going? You know, where do we, where have we parted ways? Where are we no longer aligned? I mean, those are just conversations, but I, I think you nail it. If you're getting together on a regular basis, having the conversation. I mean, that's really what it's about. Absolutely. And as importantly, your daughter gets to see that. Yes. And I think that is such a valuable, I guess, lesson that we can share with our kids is that at the end of the day, having great communication is also about how, caring and loving somebody else. Mm -hmm. So Ryan, as we wind down, it's been a great conversation, love it by the way. And I'm gonna have some, uh, I'm gonna just set some rapid fire questions I wanna ask you. Just to have some fun as we wind things down. You ready? Let's roll. Oh, you'll, you'll kill it. Okay, well, this one will slow you down. I know it. So favorite book that stands out for you and or one that you tend to gift a lot? Can't help myself, Patrick. There's three that come to mind. Okay. The, the book by Tim Grover winning was the first book that, that connected with me and had me not feel quite so crazy. So entrepreneurs that are going through a season where they say, like, I can't relate to people. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of losing it. Give them, give them winning and Tim's 13 aspects of a winner seem to, to at least let them know they're not alone. So that's, that's a pivotal part to me. Um, I like Jack Welsh's straight from the gut. I think that it is, especially with me being a little bit younger, a lot of my counterparts that are sub 40 haven't maybe heard of Jack Welsh, didn't understand the brilliance of GE from 80 to, to 2000. Mm. They, they just don't understand what that season was even like. So it's a great aspect to looking around and, and understanding what made them. Of course, Biographies have their own unique underpinnings to them, but there's there's some really great pearls of wisdom. And then the third one for me is a guy named Ken Wilber, who's got a book that's a brief theory of everything. And what that really starts to talk about is what we're discussing with my wife and I. It's it's the conversation around spiral dynamics and the progression of that from a psychological standpoint, that we are all progressing at our own rate, not only internally, but as little pods and as cities and states and groups and businesses. And we can start to understand that we're all experiencing our own life and that when you transcend a level, you can include it as well. So you're not better or worse. You just are. That is a fascinating way to start looking at life. So those are the three go-to gift books for me. Love it. Those are awesome. Favorite swear word? Fuck. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, it's short, sweet, to the point. It says a lot. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, so a, a gentleman I spend time with named William Lamb owns a company that is called Upgrade. And he has shared with me multiple times that the the theater of our mind ends up being a preview of coming, re, coming attractions in reality. Essentially a fancy way of saying, if you can see it in your mind, it's going to show up in front of you. So be really, really conscientious of that. Yeah. Anna, no, I'm going to go with this one. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the, guest, to the gates? Great job. What are you not very good at, but you continue to do it anyways? Ooh. 
So <laughs> doing dishes, right? My, <laughs> I, if I, I would love to have someone just follow me around cleaning my dishes. I, it's, it's such a bad thing. My wife gets so pissed off and rightfully so. I am capable of washing off a dish and putting the dishwasher. But yet I just, it seems like the sink just has arms and it just holds it. So I just, I put them in the sink and they sit there. So I'm, I'm working consistently to get better at that. <laughs> your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? Probably my car, my room and my desk stay consistently clean. Yeah. I'm a, a freak with car cleanliness. So just by default, you get a bug on it, I'm going to wash it. You're going to clean it up. Okay. Do you have a favorite tune or band that you consistently listen to? No. Right. To me, it's all it's all seasonal. Right. When I, I find when I need to do deep work, I actually listen to Brain FM. Yep. Right. And get some binary signaling going in. So yep. with the practical application, that's that. Might surprise you, might not, but in, in the enjoyment music, I'm a huge, I'm a huge hip hop fan. Yeah, right. Yeah, Jay-Z yeah. and his ability to to use lyrics to tell stories is just such a fascinating, fascinating ability. Hmm. Do you have a favorite movie? I like I like the John Wick series, so I'll say John Wick. Well, very good. We, you, you know, often, you know, dads will answer whatever my kids are watching. And mm -hmm. final question, Ryan, what are you grateful for? Uh, the ability to learn, the ability to be curious, and 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 to have people around me that support that in my just ongoing, never-ending necessity to ask questions. People around me are really really supportive of how often I ask questions were not to question them, but to seek clarity and seek understanding. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I am grateful to have had the opportunity to meet you and to have you join me on the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Uh, Ryan, I'm always grateful for my guests and the lessons that they bring forward. And I'm always grateful for my family and my two Bernese mountain dogs these days. I have often have to just acknowledge the gratitude of the joy that my family and my dogs bring. And uh, thanks very much for joining me today. It's been really insightful, lots of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. It's been a, a true, true pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.